Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Friday, January 27th, 2022. Can you believe it? Welcome back to the world headquarters for Bad Dad Jokes and the Nancy Pelosi Fan Club. If you were listening last <laughs> week, that one might actually make a little bit of sense because I still can't wrap my head my head around how we got wrapped up that. It, considering this is a non-partisan podcast yeah. but still anyways my friend how are you this evening happy almost weekend a happy almost february we're a month right? into 2022 what the heck and we're oh i keep saying we're about to celebrate the two-year anniversary of covid but nobody <laughs> is <laughs> no. celebrating the two-year anniversary of covid but uh that is uh rapidly upon us yeah, I know, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, that's true. I don't think that's any, uh, you know, anniversary. Is I, I can't imagine at any point in the future, hey, happy COVID anniversary. Yeah, it's not going to happen. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to get to the, the, the weekend started here. It's been a, a crazy busy week. And um, with the, the weekends, like literally in the headlights here, and this busy week rapidly disappearing into the rearview mirror, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to <laughs> put my feet up for a couple of days. But hey, plenty of things uh, to talk about this week. There's, you know, been quite a bit of news, quite a bit of things uh, to talk about. Uh, before we get into that, we had a couple of uh, interesting little stories uh, to talk about. First of all, wanted to give uh, Andy Amendola a shout out at Red Racer Books. Go look him up on Twitter. Give him a follow. We talked about him last week. He's going to be, um, is the Kickstarter live for that? He's going to be doing this kid's I book for Formula. I think it's about to start, but yeah. follow him on Twitter at yep. Red at at redracerbooks.com and you'll get all of the updates. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, love that uh, the, the concept that he sent us and it's uh, looking great. So give him a follow. And the next thing is that now that we've almost put uh, January 2022 behind us, that means that we have car launches literally right around the corner. I mean, if the weekend's in full view, the car launches are just a little bit in front of us. You've got some uh, some dates here some that, that have been added to the calendar because I think last week we only had, what, about what, four, maybe be five out of the 10 teams had committed to a launch date? Yeah, so we had four last week. We've added a couple. And the good news is we're less than two weeks away from the very first reveal. And that date could come even sooner if Alfa Romeo, Red Bull, Haas, or Williams announce a date sooner than February 10th, which is the date that Aston Martin will be revealing their 2022 contender, followed once again by McLaren on February 11th, so we get teams back-to-back. Alfa Tauri will be revealing their contender on February 14th, followed by Ferrari on the 17th. I I feel like we're accustomed to Ferrari revealing at the back of the pack, typically Mm -hmm like to keep us waiting a little bit but they'll be right in the middle of the pack this year followed by mercedes on february 18th and alpine on february 21st and like i said we've yet to hear from alfa romeo Mm -hmm. red bull haas or the williams team but six teams now and the first launch less than two weeks away well you know 
Ferrari's still salty that they got knocked out in our March Madness tournament last year when we did uh, did uh, raided the, the the liveries for the twenty one cars. Mission Winnow did that to them, my friend. Mission yeah. Winnow. Yeah, that that ugly green on that beautiful scarlet red uh, really killed the look of that car for me. So you know they 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 got to step their game up. So fingers crossed. Are we going to do that again this year? We, we should, might as right? well. With we should make it a thing, cars? right? Yeah. We, we, as soon as I they're totally out, we'll, we'll we'll launch March Madness in February if we have to, because that's how committed we are. <laughs> to, and you to know what I'll games. do as well is I'll set up a bracket. I'll figure out how to do this, but I'll mm-hmm. set up a bracket so everybody listening at home can participate. And what we'll do is we'll do a bracket digitally and then we'll share everyone's opinions from home. So we'll kind of announce the winner from our listeners and then we'll also announce our favorites as well. So let, let us set something fun up. I think that'll be cool. I think we could do like a Twitter poll, right? Just kind of put five teams on one side, five on the other and, you know, kind of put like Mercedes and Red Bull opposites and well, we know what the Red Bull is going to look like. It's going to be well, the same it's, theme it's that they've had for years. It's funny that you right? bring up Twitter brackets because mm-hmm. today I ran four brackets that are going to lead into one final bracket for the best fast food chicken sandwich that is what i was up to today while you were working your ass off i was on twitter (laughs) posting polls to find out which chicken sandwich our listeners love the most well and so far it looks like it's going to be not popeyes which disappointed me because that's my favorite now that we have them in canada well you know it's the beta test for like the one that really counts but you know having said that knowing what the best chicken sandwich is important to know i mean this is just this is you know this is what we do for our fellow f1 fans so (laughs) anyways we're just out there grinding (laughs) there's always something new coming uh, from from us one way or another a couple of other things sergio perez turned 32 i mean he seems like old but not really when I see that number, it seems like a big number. Then I look at uh, look at my birth certificate and shudder and or cringe and you know silent scream and all that stuff. Lance, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, better less said about that the better. Lance Stroll, our fellow Canadian, hit a hole in one. Cue all the bad uh, jokes here that uh, that Daddy hired a professional golfer to shoot a <laughs> hole in one for Lance, and then he took the credits. Yeah, you know that that comment's coming. And what was the last one? You had one more up there as well. Lily Herman's engine failure is yes. back. And it's funny. I was sitting downstairs at the t- dining room table working the other day. Of course, the office is under construction. The unending construction project. It might as well be a bridge <laughs> in Montreal. But I'm sitting here and I could hear her screech joy a joyous screech because engine failure was back we are still working to hopefully get lily on the show at some point in the near future i think that could be a lot of fun totally Uh, if you don't subscribe to the engine failure newsletter slide us a dm i'll flip you the link it's really fun and typically she pushes out um some updated fun formula one content every monday morning yeah yeah totally get in on that Uh, she does a great job Okay, so let's go to the mailbag. You guys, I apologize. Mark, we got like spammed over like the last month. I don't know what's up with Gmail, but our inbox was full with like literally hundreds of garbage emails. I answered a couple of them over the last uh, few days. So, you know, apologies. I didn't get back to them. They were literally buried. I don't know. It's just, uh, that's By what the you way, get the, for- the garbage, he's, when he says garbage, he's not res- res- or speaking to listener emails, but no. a lot of actual spam, actual which spam is that's hiding, like, yeah, concealing yeah. the good stuff. Exactly. 
exactly. And unfortunately, the, the garbage stuff was concealing all the good stuff. But the, the one that came in just uh, actually yesterday from uh, Devin in Utah, this is a cool one. So I'm going to read it out. Hey, guys, just hit my one year anniversary of listening. Keep it up. So this off season to pass the time, I've been watching the race uh, reviews, the 10 to 15 minute ones on the F1 TV app from each race since 2000 to give me a quote unquote modern race history lesson. I'm currently on 2014. The three biggest takeaways I have of the past 20 years. One, like other sports, the athletes complain more and more each year to the refs, in brackets, stewards in this case. Likewise, more and more each year, officials get more involved in deciding outcomes. That's an interesting observation. Two, drivers that complain the most have been guilty of the same thing that they complain about. I noticed this with Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso both complain about things that they did all the time in the past. That's another interesting uh, observation. And three, all dynasties end eventually. Father time is undefeated. Great observation, great comment. That final uh, run for Schumacher with uh, Mercedes was difficult to watch, much like Sebastian Vettel, compared to their early, early greatness. Thoughts? Thanks for all you do. Devin R. in Utah. P.S. Planning a cruise to Alaska this summer with a stop in Victoria, B.C., which isn't too far from you. Any recommendations for a one-day stop? Do you want to talk about the uh, the, the recommendations, or should we shoot uh, Devin an email? I mean, there, there's a lot in this email that's really juicy and fun to talk about. Yeah, let's get it. So, one, Victoria, a nice town. It's where uh, I went to university. It's a, yeah. it's a great university slash college town. It's on... On the very peninsula, the southern peak of Vancouver Island, actually far south of the 49th parallel, which is kind of yep. close, kind of interesting. Like, I think it's actually almost closer to Seattle than maybe it is. Well, they got the ferry that goes right in. from the inner harbor to Seattle. I mean, it yeah. comes like, what, twice a day or something like that? I think it goes in yeah, the morning, yeah, totally. comes back it's in the afternoon. Yeah. Definitely connected to the U.S. And Victoria is known because it has a very a distinctive British feel and hmm. it kind of plays that up in its tourism and its marketing. But yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful little... Uh, tourist town. It's a beautiful little college town. Very, very cool. Uh, definitely a different feel than other big cities in the country. Yeah. But yeah, let's get into the F1 stuff because I think he had some really pronounced observations and I think he articulated them really well. Eager to hear your thoughts. So the the, the first one, like is point number one, and Devin, I'll send you an email. We've got some great tips here that, uh, you know, this will rapidly turn into like an episode of Rick Steves Europe or something, but you know, Mark and Mark's, you know, Southern Vancouver Island travel <laughs> tips. Anyways, um, the first uh, I that uh, that Devin mentioned, like when he says that uh, that athletes complain more and more each year uh, to the referees, you know, over the past twenty years, I thought that was a really interesting comment, and and I really hadn't picked up on that uh, as. Uh you know, right off the top of my head, I guess that's something that just uh, over the over the passage of time <laughs> that maybe I've just, you know, grown accustomed to. But when you go back and kind of look at it in, the, in that context, and, you know, I, I'd be you know, interested to, to go back and start doing the same thing that Devin's been doing and watch these, you know, condensed race reviews and see, I mean, of course, they take all the good stuff, the interesting stuff and pack it into that 10 or 15 minutes. But uh, yeah, I, I think that is very much uh, a very astute observation. What, what about you, Mark? Do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I think I think father time can be kind on on these type of things. And, you know, I think we earlier this season talked to 
Tim Haraney. And I think one of the, and this was before Abu Dhabi. So hold your scolding of Mr. <laughs> Mark Hamilton. But we had asked him, hey, look, you know what? Oh, I think it was actually in one of the, the Q&A sessions we did on Spaces. So it wasn't a podcast. Uh, I apologize. But we had specifically asked him that question, which is, hey, look, when we look back and we reflect back on 2021, are we going to remember the stewarding snafus? Are we going to remember the controversies? Now, incidentally, yeah. because of what happened in the final race, absolutely. I don't think anyone's going to forget about that. But was this year any different than any year we've seen before? in terms of uh, team principles, campaigning with the with the race director and openly campaigning stewards in the media, like all that kind of stuff. And Tim had made a great point that this year wasn't distinctly different than any prior year in terms of team principal conduct, driver conduct, um, whatever the case may be. And that I think with time, sometimes those elements of a championship kind of fade with time and they tend to melt away. And we remember the on-track battles and we remember the records that are broken and things like that. I don't know that it's really any different now than it has been before. I, I think what is distinctly different is that fans can engage in the sport in a way they haven't been able to in previous generations with social media. So mm -hmm. oftentimes when there is an altercation on the radio or a confrontation in the paddock, it's amplified and repeated and repeated over and over again. And I think 20 years ago, Formula One, who has total and complete control over the broadcast of its races, was very, very good at deciding what viewers at home would consume. So we may not even know about, so it may have been like this, but we just may not have known. We may not have been as aware of what the paddock battles were like between the team principals and the drivers. We may not have mm -hmm. known the amount of animosity that there may have been between team principals and race directors. I, I think there was also a tremendous amount of respect for Charlie Whiting during his time as well. Um, and I think that that was well-established within the paddock and within the world of at the FIA. But I don't know that it's any different. I just think we have a better window into what's happening now than we have before. Well, I think that's true. Like uh, the, the amount of information that we have access to just in, you know, not just Formula One, but uh, life in general. I mean, we can get anything we want basically at the clicker of a button or a tap of a screen, right? But um, I, I think what made this year a little bit uh, different is the fact that the stakes were much higher and the incidents that uh, that really made the headlines yeah, this year were, were that much bigger. Silverstone, Monza, and obviously Abu Dhabi, um, Saudi and Arabia, and spa. and spa. You know, there, there was a number of flashpoints that were... Also, the, the 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 flames were fanned by certain parties on certain sides that uh, that that really, I think, amplified it. I think that was a great word that you you picked that 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 really kind of blew things up, uh, you know, <laughs> at certain points uh, throughout the year. But you know, in general, certainly across uh, other sports, I, I think there there's definitely a good call for that. That uh, that that uh, players in general are just more vocal. They'll get up in the ref's face and and things like that. So that was uh, definitely a, a good observation. So. Sorry, go ahead. But they're all, I was just going to say, they're all astute enough now to use the media, right? Like yes. 20 years ago, I, I don't think athletes in any sport were as effective at driving a particular narrative or message through the media as mm -hmm. they are today. They know how to leverage an interview. They know oh, how definitely. to leverage a soundbite. They know when to drop certain comments. And mm -hmm. I think 20 years ago, maybe they just weren't as astute enough themselves to do this. Mm -hmm. Maybe the media was different, but I think they have teams behind them that can help drive a message, whether it's about officiating, whether it's about a contract negotiation, sure. anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great observation as well. 
Point number two, drivers that complain the most have been guilty of the same thing they complain about. I noticed this with Lewis and Fernando Alonso, both complaining about things that they did all the time in the past. So your thoughts on that one? Fernando, of course, oh, has been been very vocal at uh, at times. I mean, in, and and still even today, maybe he's mellowed a little bit because I think maybe this year his um, you know return to Formula One with Alpine and maybe just where they were on the grid and the season that they had and maybe finally with age has maybe mellowed him a little bit and realizing that maybe making these incendiary comments uh, over the race radio is maybe not the best way to build relationships with the, you know your teammates or your engineer or other people within the team because i mean you kind of go back to like um, second era of uh, Fernando at McLaren and some of the things that he said, uh, you know, especially about Honda was, were very, very disparaging, but, you know, not just about, uh, you know, in inter-team stuff, but also things that, uh, that, that happen on the track. So that, that was an interesting one. And that's a comment that, uh, that my wife has often made about uh, Lewis saying that, well, you know, why is he complaining about that? Because he just did the same thing himself. And I'm generalizing and parsing here a little bit. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You don't so want to take this one up. In there yeah. for me? <laughs> I was hoping you were going to no, pick I'm, this I'm one joking. up. Now there's I'm a joking. couple of like, no, seconds think, of dead air. <laughs> I, I think we see this a lot in life, right? Sure. Which is people that commit certain acts or behave in a certain way tend to project that on other people. And I think for sure Alonzo and I think Hamilton have been guilty of that, especially I, especially I would say era one Hamilton, that, that, Mer, that McLaren era Hamilton, I think he evolved as a driver and as a person after he made the transition to Mercedes and he was in a more stable environment. But Alonso, too, especially early in his career, you know, Ferrari Alonso, McLaren Alonso, Renault Alonso. And of course, and I, I'm glad you brought that up, but I, I still think of that entire second era McLaren experience as being a total disaster. It was bad for him. It was bad for McLaren. It was mm -hmm. bad for the sport. And I, dude, honestly, even now, I still... I didn't believe for a second he would ever get another ride with a Formula One team. After the way he trashed Honda and McLaren, I yeah. couldn't believe it. And then it, it kind of made sense that, look, if anyone's going to do it, it's probably going to be Renault slash Alpine because they have linkage with him and they desperately needed a marketable star. But and they're totally terribly run to begin with. So what, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. But uh, it ultimately turned out to be a smart move because he's very much evolved as a person. And maybe that was the mm -hmm. conversation they had with him when they were putting, when they were putting ink to paper and signing to that contract, which was, hey, there are some, 
we're going to govern your behaviors on and off the track, and we expect certain things, and the way you behaved with McLaren isn't going to be appropriate this time around. So so for those of you that maybe aren't familiar with the 2015 era Fernando at uh, McLaren, let, let's just sum it up in this short um thought how not to formula one Let, let's just put it that way <laughs> yeah 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 i love it okay so the third and final point all dynasties and eventually top father time is undefeated that final run for schumacher with mercedes was difficult to watch much like sebastian vettel compared to their early greatness and yeah i mean <laughs> there's not really a lot that i can add to that i mean when you go back and you watch how Schumacher broke into the sport, how he really flipped Formula One on its head back in 92 at Spa, where he literally came out of nowhere and got this drive with Jordan and just was, it was astonishing. And then, you know, getting snapped up and going to Benetton and that real quick rise to the pinnacle of Formula One and then following up with world championships in 95 and 96 and then going over to Ferrari couple of lean years there, which was, you know, in hindsight to be expected with a, a, a team that had lost their way and was uh, in the middle of a rebuild. Obviously, if you go back and look at the history books, they did get it right and they got it really, really right. I mean, they rattled off a, a number of championships in succession doing, pulling a Mercedes before Mercedes started doing it back in 2014. And then retiring and then coming back more as a, I think, a doing Mercedes a solid and helping them get that project off the ground. But I mean, that post first retirement Schumacher, like Devin said, was just painful or difficult to watch compared to Schumacher at his, uh, at his peak. I don't want to be insensitive with this comparison, but you're mm -hmm. right. For all those folks that don't enjoy watching a dynasty in sport, and for some reason, I actually do really enjoy dynasties. Um, even despite the fact that typically my teams aren't at the forefront of the dynasty movement, <laughs> but dynasties in a sense are, are like, and this sounds terrible, and I, I realize how insensitive it is before I say it, but it's, it's like a pandemic, right? Which mm -hmm. is ultimately all pandemics end. And I like his point that Man, all dynasties- you're just dynasties so gloomy are, with the pandemic stuff this week, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go go on, oh, continue, man. please. I, I'm, I'm ready to be done with it. Um, <laughs> they, they all come to an end, and, and I think- the Mercedes one eventually will, maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but eventually it will come to an end. It'll mm -hmm. come to an end because eventually they'll make some poor decisions around Arrow or the development maybe of their next generation power unit or preferably another team just gets it really right and mm -hmm. they capture lightning in a bottle. But Beats them their own right. game. I, I do like that point. Like you look at recent dynasties and major professional sports in North America, the Bulls had a great three-year run and then they broke apart partially for two years and then they brought it back together and then they were in the darkness for a very long time. And the Yankees were great in the late, Two or late 90s and mm -hmm. then they they cooled off for a few years and they won a title in 09 and you know we've seen the golden state warriors on this pronounced i don't even know can we call them a dynasty yet three titles uh maybe they're getting close but again the point being that all dynasties come to an end we saw that with new england i think you could argue that new england was absolutely a dynasty even though they mm -hmm. spread their championships out over the better part of two decades but you see tom brady leave and and they uh, maybe don't crater but they cool off quite a bit the point being that all all dynasties end. So people will scream and kick and complain when there is a dynasty in full force, but eventually they always end. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, that, that it's interesting too, the way that you make that uh, comparison with the, you know, the, 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 the Patriots sort of, you know, with Brady and their heyday and the amount of championships that they rattled off with him as uh, their, their leader and their quarterback for literally like what, 
25 decades. And then, uh, you know, I, I mean, all things, like you say, all good things have to come to an end. And while they do have some uh, good players still in that team, they still made the playoffs. Uh, let's not forget. I mean, they didn't get as far and, uh, you know, win it as obviously their fans would want to. But it, it sports is, uh, is, uh, is cyclical. But when you go back and maybe look at some of these great names or great teams over the years, and especially where you see these ones, and I think the Schumacher one is is a great case study, if you will, where he you, you had this guy that basically was larger than life. He was this Formula One legend. He retires arguably at his pinnacle, right? So, I mean, he, he's kind of left the sport with that uh, bit of mystique. And then, well, you know, is he walking away too soon? Which I, I think if you're at that that spot, and, and I kind of have that feeling a little bit with Lewis. And I mean, I not that I say he should uh, retire right now, but I mean, you know, it's, it's like you kind of always want to leave that what if question, right? It's knowing when to walk away from the sport when the, when the time is right before you get over that, 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 that hump on that sort of bell shaped curve, right? Because, you know, once you start to cool off and age sort of starts to catch up with you, or maybe you know, you're still uh, driving good, but you know, you, you move on to a, maybe a less competitive team, uh, you know, maybe, you know, the team you've had all the success with wants to move on because, you know, you've been, become too expensive. You can't, you know, uh, come to a new deal or whatever it is that, you know, the, the mystique kind of goes. And for, for me, I, I try to forget about that, that second era of uh, Schumacher because it, it really wasn't the same, same driver as, as he was prior. Right. We've said this so many times and we're probably not the only one to draw this comparison, but it was very much the Washington wizards, Michael Jordan of formula one, when he came back to Mercedes and, sure. You know, maybe we shouldn't discount what he maybe contributed to that team and helping to develop the car. But then again, the car that ultimately launched Mercedes into super, super stardom into the stratosphere in terms of performance was very different than the one he was driving. And Mm -hmm. he ultimately would never have had an opportunity to drive a car with one of the current generations of power units. Now, I know we're up against a break, but maybe just one one more question for you just to kind of close this off. But I'm a big fan of dynasties and I, Mm -hmm. I love dynasties because I love to watch people attack them and attack them and then finally break through. I find that really satisfying. You're a big sports guy. You follow team sports just like me. Do you prefer in a perfect world to see a different champion every single year or do you like to see runs of sustained greatness and then finally somebody breaking through and, and taking that, that trophy away? Well, as somebody that's a, a lifelong Manchester United fan, this is probably an interesting question to ask because uh, w- when I started following United back, you know, the, the, the first thing I ever remember them winning was the FA Cup back in 85. When I, when I was just a kid. And then I think they won, I guess, what they called the, the European Cup Winners Cup in the early 90s. And then the Premier League came online, what was it, 1992? And then, I mean, they basically owned it for a decade and a half with uh, Sir Alex Ferguson as the manager and some of the great names that, that they had there. And then Sir Alex retiring now, what, in 2012, 2013, or whatever it was. And they've really been kind of lost in the wilderness uh, ever since. I mean, there's been a, a rotating door of uh, of managers in and out of uh, United, uh, you know, at Old Trafford. And they just haven't been able to find that uh, that magic again. I mean... You know, so you know, some were better, obviously, than others. But it's it, it was interesting. I mean, I enjoyed it at the time, being a fan. Um, but now, being a fan and that that success is gone, it's it, it's you know, it's kind of painful and and it's and it's difficult. I mean, you still support and you still cheer for your team. 
But then when it comes to like watching other teams, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> it, it's difficult because, you know, being a United fan, I, you know, I'm, I'm not happy to say, well, United's not winning, but, you know, hey, across town, City's been pretty good and they've won a bunch of championships and FA Cups and all the like, you know, they're arguably the, the, the biggest rival. So no, I wouldn't be happy with that. But I, I guess the context comes down to it. Uh, you know, wh- which sport is it? Is it a sport maybe I'm a little bit less invested in? Because when it comes to like uh, NFL, I'm a big NFL guy, and you know my 49ers are doing pretty good uh, this year. I mean, off to the uh, you know uh, sorry NFC Championship game uh, this weekend, and so yeah, I mean I want to see them uh, do good, but at, at the same time, I have a lot of respect for what they did in New England over all those years as well. So for for me, it's a it's a, it's a little bit a little bit different. I kind of pick and choose which ones I kind of like to see and. Uh, you know, nothing against uh, Mercedes, but I, I think that their time at the top is due to to end, and it would be nice to see somebody beat them on a on a regular basis. And I think that's part of the fun of uh, what we're going to see going into into this year is that that everything is up for grabs. And the, the big question is: is uh, did Mercedes did it? Did they get it right for 2022? And if so, uh, did somebody else get it? much more writer than Mercedes. I mean, wonderful English there. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Did they uh, did, did they design and build a good car, but did somebody outsmart them and uh, build a better one? And uh, are they going to be this new shining light and the benchmark going into this new era of Formula One where Mercedes, obviously, without a doubt, is the uh, the undisputed champion and, and king of uh, this 2014 to 2021 era of Formula One? No doubt about it there. Again, silence on your behalf. So, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm waiting for you to go to commercial break. No, go, <laughs> I, I was, I, I was kind of like left it out there. I was uh, waiting for this, either a comment or, uh, you know, uh, so, something that, uh, yeah, no, I like it, or no, I've got to add this. But uh, hey. no, I, I think you make some really <laughs> great points, and and obviously, I, I'm a fan of Mercedes because of the mm-hmm. connection to Lewis. But there have been times during this run where. I'm like, yeah, this this felt great. This was fun, but there's this nagging sense of guilt because you know what you're watching isn't necessarily good for the mm. well-being of the sport. Sure, and it's not quite so much. It's not quite like that when you talk about professional team sports. But I think as as big and rich as Formula One is, it's also incredibly fragile. You could have an OEM, you could have an engine supplier pull out of the sport at a moment's notice. And we saw that with Honda. That was a shock. And we've seen Honda leave before and we've Mm -hmm. seen big teams come in. And then we see teams like Toyota and BMW that are incredibly well-heeled companies back out of the sport. So I think Formula One's different than professional team sports in North America because you know what? The... (laughs) The the Milwaukee Bucks or the Milwaukee Brewers are going to survive a sustained period of brilliance from the Golden State Warriors and the New York Yankees. But in Formula One, if you have a team like Mercedes that runs off 10 straight Constructors Championship, you could pre-salary cap... I guess it's not a salary cap, but pre-cost cap, you could see teams dropping mm-hmm. off and you could see other OEMs that just say, what's the point? We're not getting anything out of this. We're in this for the marketing exposure. We're in this because we want to be able to hang banners in our dealerships. We can't sustain this. So I think for me, I love it in team sports. And as much as I've enjoyed Lewis's run, there's always this nagging sense of guilt, knowing that what I was watching wasn't good for F1 and everything that we're going to see starting, I guess, last year, but mostly this year with the new regs and the cost cap mm-hmm. is designed 
design to make sure that we don't see another Mercedes because the sport doesn't want another Mercedes. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that's, uh, like you say, a, a big difference between Formula One and, say, the NFL. The NFL has X number of teams. Maybe they add a couple of here. But, I mean, rarely do you see teams contract in the, the, the big four North American leagues, right? And, I mean, they, they tend to move them rather than contract and take a you know take that uh, that that franchise away. I mean, th- there are so. I mean, look at the two teams we have in LA now: the Rams and the Chargers. I mean, they've come from obviously uh, different places, and now they're you've got two teams in LA when there was no NFL team in LA for the longest of time, right? I mean, the, the, the LA, I mean, you could argue that the LA Rams have just come back home after an extended, uh, you know, uh, you know, stay somewhere else. Vacation but, in poor St. Louis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, nothing against St. Louis, but Louis hit, I was just going to say, I don't know if you saw this, but St. Louis won a bit of a lottery in their lawsuit with the NFL. They were oh. awarded almost $800 million um, as a byproduct of the relocation of that team. So ultimately, they relocated because they couldn't, Stan Kroenke was going to move that team anyways, but ultimately, they argued that they couldn't get a good enough stadium deal. But ultimately, uh, the city and the NFL ended up mm-hmm. in court and in damages, St. Louis won $790 million US from the NFL. There you go. They're going to take that uh, eight million or eight hundred million dollars and roll it into like relocating an, another NFL team and bring, exactly, <laughs> bring it back to exactly. St. Louis. By but, the way, we are so far off topic. We should really have a commercial break and get to the news. Yeah, we should. Anyways, uh, that's a that, that's a great not so subtle segue. Don't go away. We'll be back in <laughs> just a moment. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And yes, I promise. Well, yeah. You know, promise I'm going to try and do my best to keep this thing on track. But yeah, there's a lot of news to talk about. First one uh, we should get to is this one. And I can understand why people are justifiably a little bit upset. But uh, this uh, this first preseason test or shakedown at Barcelona that's going to go ahead in a couple of weeks is going to happen behind closed doors. There's going to be no TV coverage. There's going to be no fans in the stands. And this is going to happen on 23 to 25th of uh, February. So only about three and a half uh, weeks from now. And uh, obviously, all eyes are on Formula One. Everybody is tuned in and dialed in, wanting to see these car launches that are coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. I mean, the the, the real preseason test starts in Bahrain on March 10th. That goes for two or three days. And that's just a, a week ahead of the, the season opener in Bahrain on March 18th. So it's uh, it's it's what Formula One is saying on their on their website. It's it's a low key pre testing track session and uh, allowing all the teams to shake down their all for new 2022 cars for the first time in the same place. So is this kind of a, a Formula One way of explaining? We want to see if we got it right, and uh, you know if we got it wrong, we don't want anybody in there to uh, you know see what we <laughs> we we messed it all up. Uh, you know now that the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak. 
Definitely. And there was absolutely some furor on F1 Twitter a couple of days ago when this story was released because we were all expecting and we mm-hmm. were expecting it because that had been had been what was communicated to us that this was going to be a formal testing session. You could buy tickets. They would be posting <clears throat> lap times throughout the course of the day. It would be broadcast live. And I think ultimately the conclusion that F1, the FIA and the teams came to is, hey, you're asking us to put cars on the track that have never finished a lap. We have no idea what this is going to look like. Like this is a real shakedown. We just need to make sure that these things can complete a lap, that the (laughs) DRS systems work, that those 18 inch wheels aren't going to come flying off in the first corner. So I think the fans and the community is disappointed because we were excited to see some real winter testing and start to see some lap times pull in. Uh, I think we were expecting to see some live broadcasts and there will be packaged up TV content that will be made available on the F1 TV Pro app. So we'll be able to get kind of daily summaries of what's happened and what we're seeing and maybe some highlights from some of the top lap times, but it's not necessarily what people were expecting. And I was certainly excited. I, I'm disappointed, but I get from a business perspective, this makes sense that if I'm one of these teams and I just spent the better part of two years putting together this car and I've never had the opportunity to run it on a track, I probably don't want every camera in the world on my car as mm-hmm. I do it. Just like, and you know, one of our listeners made a great comp that, look, you know what? A new team signs a free agent in the off season. They probably don't want the media in the doctor's office when they're doing the physical before they finalize that that contract. Like these teams want a little bit of breathing room. So we'll get some daily summaries on the on the F1 TV Pro app and we'll see some highlights and things like that. But it isn't a real winter testing session. It's three days of shakedown because these teams are bringing entirely new cars to the to the grid this season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's I find it personally a little bit uh, disappointing, but I understand their their reasons uh, for for doing it. And I, I guess from Formula One's uh, point of view, or maybe more specifically, Michael Massey was uh, probably relieved that for at least a couple of days that the the, the rage was d- directed elsewhere. Maybe at yeah, least that's a, a great bit point. I never thought down. about that. <laughs> okay, now the next one, just to sort of sticking with the uh, the theme of tracks, um, the. There's a list that has come out of the current contracts in Formula One, who's paying what for hosting fees when the contract ends and any status updates or comments or anything like that. Now, it's interesting when you look at some of the hosting fees, I'm surprised relatively how low they are for the European tracks compared to how high they are for the Middle Eastern tracks. So you look on the the hosting fee uh, on the high side, we have Bahrain, which is 45 million. Uh, Saudi is 55 million. Then you go to the, the, the land of the one percenters, Monte Carlo, their hosting fee, $15 million. So 15 million US, obviously on, that's, that's on the low side. That's on the, the, the very, very low end of things. Um, and then a lot of the, the other uh, European tracks, Imola is a uh, 20 million, uh, Spain, 25, um, uh, France, 22, uh, Great Britain, 25. Hungary is a bit of a, an outlier there. Theirs is 40 million. They've got a contract that runs to 2027. Canada, 30 million. Where's the USA? So Austin, they're paying 25 million. Same for Brazil. And then again, well, on the high side again, Abu Dhabi, 40, China, 50, and Qatar, 55 million. I'm just surprised that there's a real difference in some of those race hosting fees. And I can't help but think that some of these ones, like the the, the European venues, might be grandfathered in just uh, because they've been on the calendar for so long. But then if you look at Mexico City, 
their uh, their hosting fee is only twenty five million, and they're a relative newcomer. I mean, compared to some of the other, I mean, China's been around a lot longer than than Mexico in recent times, at any rate. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that I get really excited about when it comes to Formula One. The business side excites Mm -hmm. me much more than what happens on the track. So I pay (laughs) very close attention to this kind of news. And for those of you that are new to F1 or haven't listened to us before, race sanctioning fees, which is exactly what Mr. Daly was just speaking to, represent about a third of all of the revenue that Liberty earns. So Liberty is the commercial rights holder for Formula One. They, They... extract revenue from a number of places. One Mm -hmm. is sanctioning fees. So they don't actually host the races themselves. They sell the rights on to a local organizer in individual countries to host the race. And they also earn revenues through major sponsorship and then through TV and streaming money. But about a third of their total income comes from race sanctioning fees. Now, I think what this reflects, and I would encourage people to check it out, is if you talk about places like Australia, Italy, so Monza and Imola, Spain, uh, you talk about Canada, France, Austria, Great Britain, Belgium, the Netherlands, Italy, which I just said, um, Japan. These are more traditional. Um, these are more traditional events, and in those countries, you have a private. You have a private contractor that is working with F1 to host a race, and ultimately, at the end of the day, they need to break even. And the amounts that they pay is what they can afford to pay for an event to break even. When you mm-hmm. look at some of these countries, and you made a great call out about the tracks in the Middle East, like if you're talking about Jeddah and you're talking about the UAE and you're talking about Qatar and Bahrain, well, these tracks and these events are largely, and I mean this really, really, really politely, they're very much marketing exercises for the countries in which they're hosted. I'll be very honest. I don't think most of our listeners would have any idea what or where Bahrain was, if not for the fact that it hosted an F1 event. So these events are designed as marketing exercises as much as they are for anything else. And you look at Qatar last year, like that was held at a track that seats 10,000 people at a $55 million sanctioning fee. They were never going to break even, nor do they expect to break even because what they want to be able to do is put their state and their country onto the radar of people globally because a lot of people didn't know where Abu Dhabi was prior to 2000. Mm -hmm. Certainly no one knew where Bahrain was. Few people knew where Qatar was until a couple of years ago. And of course, Qatar is going to explode into the public conscience as of the World Cup this fall. But these are really designed as marketing exercises so they can afford to spend this amount of money on sanctioning fees, where I'll be very honest, if you are the race organizer at Silverstone, you cannot afford to lose any money. And those negotiations between the race organizers in Silverstone and Mm -hmm. Liberty, they grind and they grind and they grind. They fall apart and they grind because, and I'll be very clear here, Formula One is very, very, very aggressive with the way it extracts revenue. So, you know, if you sign up to host an event with Formula One, like, okay, you know what, let's use here an example like Canada. Well, Canada's going to pay 30 million. So the race organizer in Canada is Bell Telecommunications. They spent $30 million. So they're going to be able to cash in on ticket revenue. They're going to be able to cash in on food and drink, 
But the merchandising at the track, well, that's all done and supplied by F1, and F1 keeps all of the merchandising revenue, so there's no revenue for them there. Mm-hmm. All of the hospitality and the luxury seating, the paddock club, VIP club, well, that's all done and coordinated through Liberty. So even if you host one of these events, there's very few opportunities for you to extract revenue out of it. So when you talk about some of these countries like Spain, mm-hmm. US, Italy, it's very difficult for them to break even. So even when you talk about Austin, there's 120,000 people pouring in on the Sunday. Well, you know what? You can earn off of the ticket revenue and you can earn off of food and drink, but you're earning nothing off of the merch. You're earning nothing off the paddock club. You're sure. nothing earning nothing off of the VIP club. It's it's tough. So I think we just need to draw that distinction that, hey, some countries can pay those sanctioning fees because it's a really good marketing opportunity. Mm-hmm. But for other places like Austin and Canada and Silverstone, they don't have that same luxury because it's being hosted by a private contractor that needs to break even. And uh, let's not forget also when it comes to uh, uh, Bell Telecommunications, they also own TSN, which broadcasts, guess what, the official Formula One uh, television uh, feed. So there you go. Absolutely. Cool. Let's move on to the next one. And this is going to be one that's obviously going to kick up, uh, you know, some, some reaction here. So apparently FIA is planning new race management structure, their exact wording, in the wake of the the, the big controversy, understatement, uh, after the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. And it's, it's, you know, I mean, we don't really know what's going to happen. This is a story that came uh, via Andrew Benson at, uh, at the BBC. And he's uh, saying he's being rightfully a little bit uh, kind of uh, vague on it. But uh, he was saying that uh, that sources have told uh, the, the BBC that uh, that the FIA's plans are to introduce some kind of series of safeguards that will leave the race director freer to make decisions in a calmer environment. So, you know, the the thing is, we will see what that is actually going to, to, you know, to entail, how that's going to be structured. That's kind of interesting. I mean, I think the big question on everybody's mind is, will Michael Massey, who was the race director, who was the guy that was in the booth, so to speak, that made that controversial call that, uh, that, that gave, uh, you know, set up that whole last uh, couple of laps at Abu Dhabi that ultimately gave the you know Max Verstappen the opportunity to pass Lewis Hamilton and then ultimately win the race and the championship and of course you know there's been so many people that have been not only crying for change but to want to see Michael Massey given you know a, a massive atomic wedgie and then you know get fired and sent home in shame and all these sorts of things or at least threatened with the red hot poker right um, but that's that's the big question is, will Massey keep his job? I mean, uh, Martin Brundle, Spy, Sky Sports commentator and also former Formula One driver was saying what well, was last week, I think it was saying that, you know, be careful what you wish for, that if uh, Massey gets sacked, you know, is there anybody that will be able to step up and take that uh, that, that job? Excuse me, because I mean, he more or less studied under Charlie Whiting, did he not? Definitely. Yeah. This is one, and I got to give kudos to Andrew Benson because I think he's been one of the more mainline reporters that have continued to dig at this story. And he writes here, and I quote, there's widespread acceptance across the sport that race director Michael Massey failed to follow the rules correctly during a late safety car period in the title deciding race. I think what we're probably going to see here, and I would be shocked if Michael Massey was fired, I would be shocked. But I think what Andrew's writing here or inferring is there will be... A subtle acknowledgement from the FIA that what happened wasn't correct, but it wasn't necessarily at the fault 
of a single individual, but rather there was a single individual who was significantly overworked who had a direct line of communication to team principles that shouldn't mm-hmm. have existed. And I think their acknowledgement and their report is going to come out exactly as Andrew Benson describes here with a new race management structure. So when we talk about race management, we're talking about the day of the Grand Prix, the team that is managing what's happening on the track. So you're talking about the stewarding, the race director, who's managing the safety car. And I think what they're probably going to see or what we're all going to probably see is a much richer structure Mm -hmm. that isolates that's ultimately going to isolate the race director from direct lines of communications from the teams, which we've heard is probably going to happen anyways, but that we're going to have a richer structure that helps delegate race officiating duties in a more meaningful way. So Mm -hmm. kudos to Andrew Benson for continuing to dig on this. I would be shocked if Michael Massey was fired. And I know a lot of people listening at home would be disappointed, but I simply don't see the FIA doing that at this stage. I think if it was going to happen, it would already have happened, but I think they will in a subtle way acknowledge that ideally what happened in Abu Dhabi wouldn't have happened and ensure it doesn't happen again. They're going to put in a a bigger, richer uh, race management structure. Yeah, totally. I mean, the the, the thing is, is that you you put somebody in that position and left him with a a very, very difficult decision to make, right? And I think that for me, like I said, um, right from the very beginning is that Regardless if you're cheering for Max or you're cheering for Lewis, that on some level, regardless of your allegiance, that you have to be concerned about this whole situation that uh, regardless if your driver won or lost, I mean, you should be able to put that aside. I mean, Lewis fans are understandably upset. But like I said, I think a couple of weeks ago that even if you're Max Verstappen fan, you're ecstatic that your boy won the world championship. You have to be at least on some level concerned at the at, at the situation that led to Max's victory in Abu Dhabi because theoretically it could happen again. And imagine if the shoe is on the other foot. Imagine how you how cheated you feel for your driver, and then maybe you can understand the the, the upset and the rage that Lewis's fans are are, are having. So, I mean, I, I think justifiably that uh, that he's uh, worthy of some criticism whether or not that uh, goes as far to that he should be fired from his job i'm not really there yet i think that uh, fundamentally like foundationally that the that the FIA and formula 1 need to make changes and obviously i think that if he does stay in that role that he has to be under a bit of a microscope microscope pardon me at the you know moving on and uh, to ensure that uh, that these things don't happen again. And I mean, it was a very unique situation. I mean, we all talk about 2016 and that race between Nico and Lewis going down to that last lap and everything, or that last race as well. But I mean, that championship between Lewis and uh, Nico was far different than it was between Max and Lewis because that was an inter-team battle. They were still going to win a constructor's and a driver's championship. It was just like which driver was going to win where there was this this you know crescendo this big wave that had kind of been building up all year between Red Bull and Max and and Lewis and Mercedes and it really peaked at Abu Dhabi so the circumstances were a, a, a lot different the same but different Totally. And concludes Andrew Benson before we move on to the next story, because I think this is interesting. Sources have told BBC Sport that the FIA's plans are to introduce a series of safeguards that will leave the race director freer to make decisions in a calmer environment. Many insiders admit that Massey Mm -hmm. made a series of operational errors in the closing laps at Yas Marina that were contrary to the rules and accepted protocols. And there remain serious questions about him in his future role. At the same time, it has been accepted that the Australian was left exposed 
mm-hmm. isolated, and under too much pressure in the final laps of the race. A support structure is being planned for the race director, insiders say. This is likely to include a barrier between that role and the teams to avoid the direct lobbying to which Massey was subjected from the team bosses of both Mercedes and Rebel and Abu Dhabi, mm-hmm. and revisions to the operations of the stewards who are independent of the race director and decide on penalties for breaches of the rules are also being considered. Well, they got to look at everything. Uh, let's put it that way. So obviously, yeah, this is going to be agree. a story that we're going to be watching closely as are all of you uh, moving forward. Anyways, let's take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about our next favorite subject, and that is uh, sprint races. So keep your hands on the steering wheel. We'll be back in just a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back. And there are apparently, or there is some talk that uh, perhaps uh, they they might have to ditch some of these sprint races in in 2022. And honestly, rewind a year to this time in 2021. I think we were both really excited, uh, perhaps a little bit too excited, which I guess is kind of the way that uh, you and I both are. Uh, We were really looking forward to seeing how these sprint races were going to to, to work and how they were going to add a spectacle to the Formula One weekend. But we've both really cooled on uh, on this. And, you know, to, to be quite honest, if they decide that they have to abandon races or sprint races in 2022, for me, I'm honestly not that I wouldn't be disappointed, Mark. Yeah, it's it's crazy that we went from trialing it at three events last year to possibly as many as six sprint races this year. And yeah. ultimately, what it's going to come down to is the fact that there's a disagreement amongst the teams about how much additional money should be added to the cost cap to account for the fact that there could be damage and additional wear and tear from not three, but six sprint races. And I think the biggest concern here is that while some teams are open to the concept of adding to the cost cap and two teams are heavily lobbying to add as much as $5 million to the cost cap, most teams in the sport are absolutely not receptive to the idea of increasing the cost cap because they lobbied for years to get one. And it's probably no surprise, and we can speak to this a little bit now, but the two teams that it's been revealed are lobbying heavily to add an additional $5 million to the now $140 million cost cap are none other than drumroll red bull and mercedes now i Mm -hmm. loved this quote from from zach brown who has been a huge advocate of hey let's do the sprint race but we can't be adding incremental millions of dollars to the cost cap because that's really only going to benefit a few teams but he had this really great stinging quote from a couple of weeks ago where he said some teams still look for excuses to raise the cost cap and win world championships with checkbooks, he wrote in a preseason column on the McLaren website. The ongoing lobbying by certain teams to increase the cost cap for sprint race damage is a continuing example. This Saturday sprint race initiated by Formula One has added new viewers and raised the profile of the sport to expand its global fan base. However, these teams, who we now know are Mercedes and Red Bull, (laughs) continue to demand a raise to the cost cap by an inordinate amount of money. Despite the clear evidence 
since that little damage was incurred during these races last year in a thinly veiled attempt to protect from their competitive advantage being eroded. So I love, I love that Zach Brown here yep. is throwing some daggers at two very obvious targets. Yeah, I love it. I mean, uh, I, I'm an unabashed uh, Zach Brown fanboy, and uh, yeah, and it's uh, for, for stuff too. like that. And you know, I, I just love that uh, that that he's not pulling any punches, and he's he's not keeping quiet on this. And he's not really. I mean, he didn't obviously come out and name the uh, the, the guilty parties, but you, you can read between the lines. It's there, pretty it's clear. pretty obvious yep. who he's talking about, right? And one of those cars yep. is silver, and the other one is green with red and uh, and and yellow on it. Or sorry, green blue. Pardon me. I was gonna um, say. Yeah, I was just like, uh, yeah, no, pardon me. It, it's late. It's already ten o'clock, and th- this coffee I got in my mug is decaf. So. You know, life lesson uh, there, but uh, you know, I mean, great and good on for for Zach, uh, s- you know, stepping up and 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 saying this. I mean, it's interesting though that uh, perhaps that uh, that the sprint races, you know, might not go ahead just become from from a cost point of view, and that's where the debate is, rather than maybe a sporting point of view, where that that that's where my issue is uh, with, with it. It's just like how can they make it a little bit more exciting? But I mean, th- there there is no doubt that there were more eyes on Formula One. That there were more eyes on these uh, the, these events over the weekend because the one thing that I thought was kind of cool was on a Friday being able to go fire up the F1 TV Pro app. Pardon me. Excuse me, I was going to hiccup. And then uh, then actually being able to follow what was happening on the Friday with like the the, the qualifying for the sprint race. You got the sprint race on on the on the Saturday, and then the big event, the main event on Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning, whatever it is. And so from that point of view, it was fun. It was just that uh, you could kind of tell that once the race kind of settled down, that it kind of lost a little bit of the excitement and drivers weren't going to risk uh, too much. But I, I still think, and I guess that kind of goes back to the discussion that we've had before, that there is this untapped potential with the sprint races. I just don't know exactly how to, the the, the mechanics of it to make it a little bit more you know, to, just to tap into it and really extract from it what I think that they're really hoping to get. You you just hit on the exact thing that F1 is trying to tap into, though, which is Friday interest. Like, let's be very honest. It's very rare that I'm tuning into free practice one and free practice two live, oh, same, if same. ever. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I'm definitely tuning into qualifying on a Friday afternoon when I should be working. So all of a sudden, (laughs) F1 has my eyeballs on the Friday, the Saturday, and the Sunday. And while I'm still not convinced that the current format is correct, I think you and I have talked about this ad nauseum to Mm -hmm. that. To me, qualifying should set the grid for the sprint race and for the Grand Prix that that the sprint race, it's not even a sprint race, sprint qualifying, sprint qualifying shouldn't be setting the grid for the Grand Prix. We we did see something pretty exciting in Brazil, right? Like we saw an entire interwoven storyline between qualifying and sprint qualifying in the race. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was an exciting weekend that Absolutely. teased at the potential of what this could potentially be. But the other thing, and this kind of goes back to the story we were talking about a couple of minutes ago, which is this is exciting for F1 because one, it gets more eyeballs on the TV and on the streaming app for three days instead of two, but it also makes it easier for them to increase the sanctioning fee for those race weekends. So if I'm a race and I'm paying $25 million now and Liberty gives me the opportunity to host one of these special sprint qualifying race weekends, hey, maybe now I'll pay $30 million because I'm going to get that many more people through the gate on the Friday when maybe there could just be some stragglers sitting in the stands watching free practice because they don't work weekdays. That's the real reason here is yeah, increased but, revenue, which but is But then fine. you have like this real 
disparity in um, the, the the race hosting fees, right? You look at uh, Interlagos, they're on the calendar now till 25. They're paying $25 million per year for the race hosting fee. And last year, they got the sprint race on top of it. Like you say, it had like that phenomenal backstory that was interwoven and then kind of drove the narrative right from the, the, the Thursday from when everybody just arrives at the track right up until the race itself started. But I mean, if you're one of these other tracks that's, uh, you know, say Azerbaijan, for example, paying $55 million per year, uh, and uh, they're on uh, the, the the calendar to 24, so, r- excuse me, roughly the same amount of time as uh, Brazil, it's just like, well, we're paying double what these guys are, but they're getting this uh, this extra cherry on top. You know, so you can see, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, where there might be some you know, dispute among the different, uh, you know, race uh, events. Okay, moving along to uh, Mercedes, James Allison, sorry, who, yeah, James Allison, who's the the chief te- technical officer, what a great title that is, uh, by the way, believes that the changes that are being introduced this year dwarf any other changes that uh, we've seen in Formula One, basically in history, which is uh, absolutely, uh, you know, a a huge, huge uh, quote. So uh, James had to say, quote, I've been working in the sport for over 30 years and they dwarf anything else that I've ever seen. I suspect if I were to dig out uh, Wikipedia and go through every single season of the sport that there's ever been, there would be nothing to match the scale of the change that comes with 2022. The rule set is not only enormous, the regulations about twice the size of what's preceded them, but they're almost entirely different of what came before them, and that has meant that we've had to reinvent the car tip to toe. Everywhere you look, it's completely new, not just uh, new parts, but in, as in a completely new philosophy. A completely uh, different aerodynamic package, different brakes, different wheels, crucially different tires, and even the engine. One of the things which is less touched by the regulations than many, even there the power unit has to be prepared so it can be frozen for three years. All the goodness that you can possibly pack into it has been packed into it for now or forever hold your peace because after that, the changes will be very, very difficult to make real. It has been incredibly hard, end quote. So you have a guy like James Allison that's been around the sport for an incredibly long time come out and say that and basically break it down into that, uh, you know, that that little, well, it's not even a little quote, but I mean, it, you, you just get a sense of just what, what when I'm reading it, I'm just like, okay, what, 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 what am I reading here? So you can imagine if you're working on this, and basically this car is is new in every single aspect. I mean, even down to the size of the wheels that these cars are going to be using, it is, it is really is incredible. And I think that's why there is so much inten- attention focused on Formula One and this new season is just because we, I think we all comprehend, regardless if you're the chief technical officer of Mercedes. Or, you know, just a couple of regular fans like you and I, I I think we all understand how huge these changes are and how excited and also perhaps a little bit nervous how these changes are going to work and are they going to have the intended effects that they they had all these years ago. The quote that he had that struck with me the most was this one. The rule set is not only enormous, the regulations are about twice the size of what preceded them, but they're almost entirely different. So when you think about that, what he's talking about is 
Prior to this year, the formula, the regulations upon which teams would refer when they built their car, it was pretty loosely defined, which is why we see such huge variation in things of wing design and, and barge boards and side pods, that there was this wild variation because the regulations and the formulas were pretty loose, and it gave designers and engineers a ton of creative license. What he's saying here is, no, now the regulations... The regulations are twice as thick as they were before, which means that the designers and the engineers have far less creative license, which means in theory, the conclusions which they draw should be much more similar to each other. So in the past, you could have a team that looks at the formula and says, ah, we're going to do this with our wing because we're allowed. And another team would say, hey, we're going to do something completely different because it's allowed. But the regulations now are so tight that the conclusions that those two individual teams come to on that one component should be very similar. And then on top of that, there's far more standardization in terms of the parts. So either, hey, you need to simply design your part to this exact standard. So all mm -hmm. the teams design and build the same part, or you all need to go to the same supplier and buy that part there. And we saw that with BBS being now the sole supplier of wheels. So teams don't have the ability to source or build their own wheels anymore. Every team is going to rock the exact same wheels wrapped in the exact same tires and will eventually, I assume, get somewhere as well where they're using standardized braking components as well, probably from Brembo or a different supplier like that. Yeah, kind of makes you wonder if that's uh, the direction that the sports is, is going to go. And I kind of have this the feeling like you do that that's exactly what's going to happen. Okay, time for another break. When we come back, uh, we still have a pile of things uh, to talk about. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right, well, welcome back to the show. And next story up on the uh, the agenda is uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, going to alter the track layout for 2022. This race is coming up uh, at the front end of the calendar compared to the, the back end of the calendar. I mean, it's only been a couple of months. When, when did we have Saudi? It was just back in November, wasn't it, Mark? I think it was. It, no, December it was, 5th. Was it December? December 5th, I, was gonna, I think. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. middle of November, but I've lost all concept of uh, time. But yeah, so I mean, it's coming up uh, pretty quick. And I think that was was the the impression that we all had it, it, it seems like it's a track of a lot of potential but it was just uh, I, I think they overthought it a little bit and it was obvious that some of the features and some of the corners that they built in the track and that that initial configuration just was not conducive to those cars and in, in some places was uh, just uh, downright uh, dangerous Anyways, uh, the race CEO, Martin Whitaker, uh, said that the work will be done to address the, the safety concerns and improve visibility uh, before they have the next race there in March. Anyways, Whitaker had to say, quote, we have been striving to improve on some areas for our second event. Firstly, there are going to be one or two slight changes to the track. These tweaks are directly related to the driver's sightline from the cockpit. It's minimal work, but it will help improve forward visibility in a couple of corners. Secondly, we will make some small modifications to the barriers that will favor the lines that the drivers take around the course. End quote. So those are the, the obvious ones. I mean, we, we had that restart when it required another restart where you had like this sort of a accordion effect of everybody <laughs> driving up the backside and there was just uh, incidents all all race long. So hopefully these, what, he, what he's saying, are minor tweaks will actually enhance the, uh, the, the, the track and uh, make it obviously safer, but will also lead to a better race. So we'll find out. I mean, it's only going to be, what, two months? now before we go back to Jeddah. So there's that. Definitely. I, I think we were lucky with Jeddah this year. It was exciting and it looked great on TV, but I'm very happy that they're receptive to the feedback from the drivers because 
The drivers were very clear that this felt very dangerous in places, and it was specifically because of the lack of visibility. And I think we know in Formula One that oftentimes drivers initiate the movement of turning into a corner long before they can see the exit from that corner. But I think even at Jeddah, they they felt a little bit unsafe, simply that there were too many blind corners where there could have been straights. But I'm very, very happy and relieved to hear they're listening to feedback from the drivers. I'm surprised that the changes are as subtle as they're described in this article and through those quotes, because yeah, I assume tell that, that to the people been- that actually have to make these, these changes of a, yeah, yeah. Minor tweaks. Yeah. Thanks, Martin. That's, that's <laughs> fair. That's fair. And, and again, you know, the FIA did give their blessing on this track moments yeah. before the first Grand Prix, but you're right. The turnaround was remarkably quick too. We're talking about three or four months between yeah. Grand Prix. And then ultimately this track could possibly be decommissioned in the near future as we move to Kadia anyways. But yeah. But I'm glad they're being responsive to drivers because ultimately safety is paramount beyond anything. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the thing is, too, I was going into that race. Carlos Sainz was one of the drivers. I think maybe even Gasly. They, they were, if memory serves correctly, they were among the guys that were talking that, and voiced concerns about safety. And especially Gasly was, or sorry, um, Sainz was saying that if something happens, you're going to be on top of it before you can even really react. And, you know, <laughs> he was proven correct in that uh, in that regard. Fortunately, nobody was hurt, but when you see the amount of um, you know incidents that we have, I mean, that potential is there, so they have to have it uh, sorted out ASAP. Okay, next story. Um, 2022, there's going to be a three-day weekend uh, schedule with the uh, media activities moved to, to Friday. So things are going to be kind of compacted, condensed a little bit, because we are going to embark on another mammoth seasons, uh, season, 23 races. And obviously, over the past uh, two years, as we've gone through the pandemic, that uh, this has been kind of a fluid uh, situation, and we've expected, especially in 2021, 20, uh, uh, sorry, in 2020, that uh, it was just a big question mark. And I mean, they did a phenomenal job to get uh, 20, sorry, 17 races in, in that, uh, in that year when everything was still so uncertain. And last year, I mean, still things were still tossed around and we still ended up getting 22 races, which was phenomenal. But I feel like going into this year, despite all the things we hear about Omicron and cases and stuff like that, I have a feeling now we're starting to, you know, sort of settle into it. And I I found that I'm kind of feeling that we're finding a way to go into or, you know, do things properly, I guess is maybe the phrase I'm searching for within this pandemic as hopefully it starts to burn itself out. Um, That's, I feel more confident that this 23 race calendar is going to happen this year compared to the previous two years. I think, you know, somewhat awkwardly, that's what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, I, I, I feel you. And I think we've started to hear that from certain countries as well. Australia, who certainly hasn't now hosted an event since 2019. The Australian mm-hmm. government's come out already and and pledged their commitment to the fact that this race is going to go ahead. And I think this is the year the world becomes comes to the realization that we're going to need to find a way to coexist and live with this virus. And I think we're probably going to see a 23 race calendar knock on knock on wood, 
fingers crossed, but I feel confident that that's what we're going to see. The other thing to just quickly add about this is when we talk about the three-day race weekend, historically, to give everyone a little bit of context, typically the teams would roll in on the Wednesday, the mechanics would start putting the car together on the Thursday, the team leadership and the drivers would do all of their media obligations. On Friday, you would have two 90-minute free practice sessions. On Saturday, you would have a 60-minute free practice session and then qualifying. Last year, they presumably in the spirit of cost considerations, they cut down those Friday free practice sessions to 60 minutes. I don't know if we talked about this last week, but it looks like they're going to stretch those Friday free practice sessions back to 90 minutes, but they're also Mm -hmm. going to squeeze all of those media obligations into Friday. So what had historically been a four-day race weekend is now a three-day weekend. So I'm sure the mechanics will still be busy assembling the cars on Thursday to get them ready for Friday, but there won't be any media availability. There won't be anything like that. There won't be anything happening at the track. So in the past where fans may have been able to buy that four-day pass, I'm not sure that that's going to be a thing. And I think it's going to be a more compressed package. And the reason for this being that, hey, if we're going to have 23 races this year, if we can cut potentially one day off that race weekend for every race weekend, we can potentially give 23 days back to certain members of certain teams that Mm -hmm. that's one less day they need to be at the track. That's one day more that they can spend at home or one additional day they can spend at the factory. Yeah. And I think they have to make concessions somewhere. I mean, if you're expecting, you know, your teams to show up for 23 races and all four corners of the, uh, of the globe, you have to find some other way to give some time back to them. So, I mean, if they can condense a race weekend into three days from four, then I'm, uh, I'm all for it. Okay. Next story. And this is the one that just uh, keeps evolving and uh, changing all the time. So apparently Honda is going to be a lot more involved in Formula One because I swear a year ago they said that they're going to be leaving Formula One at the end of 2021, but then they said that they weren't quite going to, and now it's uh, it's turning out that they're going to be a little bit more involved than the last time they said they were going to be a little bit more involved. And this comes, yeah, I know, it's like trying to keep up, right? It gets a little bit uh, difficult, but... Helmut Marco, who's the, uh, the the big advisor over there at Red Bull, has uh, now revealed that uh, they found a different uh, solution to things that they had originally uh, sorted out or arranged with, uh, excuse me, with, with Honda. And now, excuse me, it's uh, it's uh, panning out that the the power units are still going to be manufactured exclusively and one hundred percent in Japan. And so they, they don't need to worry about uh, manufacturing the the, uh, the 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 motors in England. This is still all going to be done in Japan. And the interesting thing is, and I guess this isn't really a surprise because it came out before Christmas that that even though Honda was uh, you know moving everything uh, over and this whole Red Bull powertrains or whatever they're calling it was going to take over everything that that they they weren't going to be able to actually take over the IP and use it to build their own in- engine in 2026 and beyond. So now that's been confirmed that that IP is going to stay in Japan, it's going to stay with Honda. And so that really leaves a real clean slate with Red Bull and what's going to happen in 2026. So that makes that whole VW Audi slash Porsche story and situation a lot more interesting. This is just 
bonkers when you, when you think about it that a year ago, well, probably a little more than a year ago, late 2020, Honda announced their departure from F1, that 2021 would be their last season. And, and like you said, the story keeps evolving and getting legs. And it was thought that, hey, Honda, as a, as a professional courtesy to Red Bull, would supply engines in 2022, but ultimately they would hand over the IP to the current power unit. And that for 2023, 2024, 2025, Red Bull would use that IP, that that blueprint to develop the engines themselves. Well, all of a sudden, that's not what's happening here at all. And the story keeps evolving. So what we know now is that Honda, as expected, is going to supply power units, unbranded power units for 2022, but they're now going to provide the exact same power units out of their Japan facility for 23, 24, and 25. So Honda is now in this absolutely peculiar bizarre situation where they are building and supplying Mm -hmm. power units to a customer team, but they get none, none of the benefit of having the Honda badge on that engine or in the title sponsorship of that team. It's just the most peculiar situation. Yeah, yeah. And it really comes down to, or at least it's been speculated that the previous leadership team at Honda in Japan, in Tokyo, had decided to pull the plug, that this experiment wasn't what they thought it was going to be. It's not in line with their road car ambitions, but that the incoming leadership team was much more invested to doing it. But ultimately, they had inherited the decisions that were made before they got there. Mm. But now we're in this peculiar situation where, for all intents and purposes, they are the official supplier of the power units, but they're going to get none of the credit. Now, in the meantime, we know that Red Bull's been building up their powertrains division, so their team now no longer has to do anything for the current generation of power unit. They are totally hands-off. They're going to be two separate operations, so you're going to have the Honda facility in Japan supplying power units up until 2026. In the meantime, the Red Bull powertrains division in Milton Keynes is going to start developing the future power unit that will supersede it. Now, to your point, the interesting thing is, will they do that themselves or are they going to partner up with the Volkswagen group and have them bring in their experts to help sap- supplement their their knowledge base? It's a very yeah. peculiar situation. And I just, I can't believe that Honda is willing to continue to supply engines without any of the ancillary benefits of being on that power unit from a stamp perspective. It's just bizarre. Yeah, you know, it's got to be some sort of uh, almost like a marketing kind of thing now that they sort of committed to this sort of completely electrification of their road road car fleet. Maybe they want to be seen as hands off of anything with an internal combustion unit. Uh, and perhaps, uh, like you say, that uh, the, the current leadership in, in in Tokyo has just inherited this uh, decision from the the, the previous uh, regime and has just uh, decided to, to go with it for whatever reason. But yeah, I mean, it is, it's a real head scratcher. And it, it's kind of funny too, because the way that this story has kind of evolved, you can't really, I, I'm just surprised every time this little twist kind of like pops up every several weeks. It's, it's very, very peculiar, uh, like you say. But, you know, it, it's interesting because um, Masashi uh, Yamamoto, who's there, the former uh, F- uh, Formula One managing director at uh, at Honda, is leaving the company to set up consultancy work uh, firm <laughs> to actually work with Red Bull. So, you know, just uh, it's sort of twist upon twist upon turn and uh, all these uh, different things. So, I mean, you would think a, a person of Yamamoto's uh, caliber 
and his experience, you know, you wouldn't think he would walk away from a job with a company like Honda to set up a consultancy firm for something that's only just going to last. I mean, th- there's got to be some sort of long-term plan to this that we're, we're obviously not uh, privy to and we're not seeing. And, uh, but when you see all these things and hear all these things, especially Mr. Yamamoto moving on to do his own thing, kind of leaves a lot more questions uh, that, that need to be answered that we currently have answered uh, for ourselves. Okay, uh, let's take a look. What's up next? Oh, this is, uh, okay, that's um, that's still the Honda one. Actually, let's uh, take uh, a final break, and then we've got a, a bunch of quick hits, which we'll get to, and then we'll slowly start to wrap up the show. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a, a short moment after a short message from our sponsors. All right, and welcome back. And Lando Norris, the McLaren driver, said he's happy and confident to be a pioneer for mental health in Formula One uh, this uh, season. And uh, uh, this past uh, year, uh, Norris uh, had his own uh, mental health issues and talked uh, quite openly and candidly uh, about those, and especially the... uh, excuse me, some of the, the struggles that he had in his uh, rookie season back in uh, 2019. Anyways, uh, Lando had to say, quote, I think, first of all, I'm very happy to see more and more people speaking out about it and realizing it's only going to benefit them and benefit others. I don't think there's any negatives really from doing so. It's only going to help you get better and it's only going to help if you're going to have a big following. If you have a lot of people watching or whatever it is, you're only going to get help from people who are also struggling. Uh, so first of all, I'm very happy. I'm proud to be part of that group of people who have accepted it and are happy and confident to speak out about it. And I think one of the biggest things which have allowed me or made me think that it's a good thing to speak out about is my fans, my followers. It's basically when I could hint at, for example, that the first few times before I was speaking about it publicly, a few of them saying it's helping them or the impact that it's had on them. And over time, raising the impact I can have on those thousands of people is huge, end quote. So good on uh, Lando. I think it's great. Um, Obviously, you know, when it says something that he's experienced himself and he's using that platform and the influence that he has as a Formula One driver for something positive and for, for something good, especially something as uh, as important and crucial as mental health, I think it's a I think is a really, really good thing. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's not thousands. It's tens or hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> exactly. Or of people. Yeah. And, and this this is less about the state of mental health within the Formula One ecosystem. This is more just about destigmatizing mental health in general. And if you can have somebody like Lando Norris, who is a hero, a superhero to so many fans, and he can come out and talk about this, it destigmatizes it for all those people that maybe suffer from it, but they don't know they're suffering from it. Or furthermore, they know that something's wrong, but they wouldn't know where or how to ask for support. So it's just great to bring this into the public consciousness and talk about it because if you destigmatize it people that suffer from it that maybe wouldn't have been so open to seeking treatment or seeking support are more likely to do so like look this guy who's a formula one race car driver this is a guy who's contending to win grand prix he's on top of the world he struggles with mental health maybe i'm not so peculiar and unusual and and weird and all those things that people that struggle with mental health sometimes self self-label with but i just think it's cool and the more we talk about it the better because ultimately if it encourages people to seek treatment and and get better and improve their quality of life that's a good thing 
Absolutely. Next story moving along is the W series has confirmed uh, they're coming back for a third season. They're going to have uh, eight rounds uh, that uh, is going to kick off in uh, Miami at the beginning of uh, May. There's going to be three uh, carryover events uh, from last year. That's uh, be Britain, Hungary, and uh, Coda. So the, um, the, the the tracks or the races that we're going to have in Miami. Barcelona, Silverstone, Le Castellet in France, Budapest, Suzuka, Coda, and then uh, season finale uh, roughly about Halloween at, um, I was going to try and say the, 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 the Spanish equivalent, but let's just go with uh, Mexico City. I think it's Autodromo Armanos Rodriguez. So there you go. You, you're so well when it comes to speaking foreign dialects and getting dialects. Is that even an appropriate term? I don't know. Well, if but my you're buddy so Jorge, at, who's from Mexico City, hears that, he's going to be, I, I'm going to get angry messages. It's like, be like, dude, just stop. <laughs> don't try with the Spanish. You just butchered every time. But so anyway. Well, you're great <laughs> I try. with the Dutch. You are great with the Dutch. I will give you credit for that. But I'm super excited. We owe yeah. our fans, I think, better when it comes to W Series coverage. And just to kind of state the, the calendar here real quick, it's going to open in my Miami, which is super exciting because that event is going to get a ton of global exposure. And this is why I was so excited for season two of the W series when they basically piggybacked on the F1 calendar. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense or a disrespectful sense, but I think it's good for any young racing series to be able to travel with F1 sure. and get that level of exposure. But we're going to see them in Miami, which is super exciting. We're going to see them in Spain a couple of weeks later, then Silverstone mm-hmm. on July 1st to 3rd. We're going to go to France, Hungary, Japan, Austin, once again, where we saw 400,000 people experience W Series over the course of that race weekend, which is fantastic for the series. And then, like you said, the championship will wrap up in Mexico City in Mexico at the end of October. So I'm super excited for the series. We're probably going to have a new champion, or we will potentially have a new champion this year based on the way that the grid's shaking up, which is also very cool. But I would love to see the W Series continue to evolve and improve these cars with time. I think the drivers are far more capable than the cars that they're driving. Sure. And I would like to see that as the W Series evolves, we see more and more sophistication in the packages Mm -hmm. that these drivers are being given. Yeah, totally. Uh, great to see them come back for for another year. Next story. So uh, we told this is kind of like going back to what we were talking about uh, much earlier in the show. But uh, Singapore is back uh, on the calendar this year. Going to be on the calendar now until 2028 after signing a, a new deal. Obviously, we haven't been to Singapore in a couple of years because of uh, COVID and all that, but uh, we're going to be back there uh, October 2nd, um, the weekend of October 2nd this year, and that's going to be one of these triple header weekends, and it's going to be right in there with Russia and Japan, so good to uh, be back. You know, I kind of have mixed uh, feelings sometimes about uh, road circuits, but for for, for me, I, I don't know, like... Sometimes I'm not really all that excited about Singapore, but every time we go to Singapore, I'm always excited to watch the race. I don't know what it is. Uh, Once we actually go there, I enjoy uh, watching that race uh, quite a bit. Maybe if you're not uh, Sebastian Vettel and Kimi Raikkonen, who had kind of an embarrassing coming together there a couple of years ago, but that's another conversation for another day. Now, this might be one that you want to speak to a a little bit. So uh, Williams Advanced Engineering has been sold off in a 164 million pound uh, deal to uh, an Australian firm called uh, Fortescue Metals Group, which is, uh, you know, a a mind boggling as a staggering amount. I mean, 164 million pounds, that is not... A small amount of change at all. So they're this uh, Fortescue uh, have bought a hundred percent of the, uh, the the company, and uh, the, uh, the the chairman, Dr. Andrew Forrest, says that the deal came about as his company uh, looks to help 
uh, quote, save the planet from cooking, end quote. And uh, by heading towards the ambitious aim of making FMG fully carbon neutral by 2030. So that's uh, Fortescue Metals Group. So what are your thoughts on this one, Mark? Did, Did this seem inevitable that this might happen at some point? Yeah, and I think we need to be very clear here that Williams Advanced Engineering and Williams Grand Prix Engineering are two distinct entities. And it's not the Formula One team that's being sold here. It's a company that was created by Frank Williams, I think back around 2010, I think is when it was stood up. Yeah, uh, Williams Advanced Engineering was founded by the late Sir Frank Williams back in 2010, born out of the Williams Formula One team with the aim of becoming leaders in engineering and technology sector. So it was stood up initially as an operation to help the team earn revenue. So Williams being an independent family-owned business could depend only on constructors' prize money and sponsorship money to fund the operation. So about 10 years ago, Frank had started to explore other sectors that, hey, we have these great engineering resources here under the roof at our factory. What if we started using them and monetizing them Mm -hmm. in different ways? And ultimately, this group became hugely profitable and and really the backbone of that operations, really the backbone of their financial operations. And now they're being spun off. So I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily clear on who has a stake in the ownership of Williams Advanced Engineering at this point, whether it's Dalton, whether it's the, the Williams family or a little bit of both, but ultimately it's been gobbled up by this bigger Australian company uh, to, as you explain, uh, very much gear them towards the future of a, a lower carbon neutral existence. And Craig Wilson, uh, Williams Advanced Engineering Chief Executive, explained high-performance battery and electrification systems are at the core of what we do at WAE, and this acquisition investment will facilitate the company's future growth to support the delivery of zero-emission products and services across existing sectors such as automotive, motorsport, and off-highway, and Mm -hmm. new sectors. Two former Williams F1 Deputy Team Principal Claire Williams also expressed her support for the deal, given the wider implications for trying to bring global emissions down. She added, and I quote, since the team sold the majority shareholder holding WAE to EMK Capital a couple of years ago. EMK and the management team have done a fantastic job in taking the business forward. We are delighted that Fortescue are now taking over that mantle and see the value in the company, its people, and tackling some of the biggest issues facing our world today. Cool. That's a, that's a neat story. Okay, next one. I'm going to let you take this one because I'm comfortable in talking about most things with four wheels, but two wheels uh, is not, I'm not really quite as knowledgeable as you are, but uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, motocross, uh, specifically Kawasaki. So I am, I'm shocked about this and I still feel, I still feel like when I saw this story earlier today that it was Kimi Raikkonen, Kimi Raikkonen pranking all of us, but big news and I think all of us speculated, believed, assumed that Kimmy would disappear into the sunset. He would camp out with his family. He mm-hmm. would enjoy a quality brew every evening on the porch <laughs> of his place and that he would relax for the rest of his eternity. And that the last sure. thing that he would ever become involved with again was motorsport. We all joked about that, that he would never be seen at an F1 track again. Well, we were all wrong because <laughs> Kimi Raikkonen is getting right back into motorsports and he is doing so through a motocross venture, which he claims is an extremely serious project. So Kimi Raikkonen now is the team principal of the official Kawasaki Racing Motocross Grand Prix 
team, which is absolutely mind-boggling because, again, like I said, I never expected to see him involved with professional organized motorsports again, but here he is, a team principal, and I quote, it's no secret that, for me, one of my greatest passions in life for many years has been motocross, but this team is not what you might call a hobby. It's very serious, says Kimmy. I am very focused, and we aspire to be the very best we possibly can be, he says. Now I've retired from racing. I will be able to spend more time on this project, not on the daily issues, but more from a strategic point of view, using my experience of how teams work and what creates success on the world stage. Everyone, including myself, is delighted that Kawasaki has chosen us to be their factory team. I know that the chances of success is always greater with direct factory support. So this translates into a great opportunity for us at the new Kawasaki racing team in MXGP. Wow. So I'd never expected to see him involved with organized racing again. Here he is two months later, a team principal for the official Kawasaki entrance in MXGP. Just incredible. Yeah, uh, totally. When I saw this uh, earlier today, I I did a double take. I I wasn't sure. Well, the first thing I did is uh, I I want to make sure that it wasn't April 1st because uh, yeah, much like yourself. Yeah, me too. That's what I kept thinking. Yeah, I I totally did not uh, expect to see Kimmy come back, but uh, good for him. And whether or not this grows into something else and or he sticks with this or this is just kind of a one-off remains to be seen, but certainly not uh, w- one of the news items I was expecting uh, to see this uh, th- this week or at all, period. Okay, final story, and this is a, is a cool one. So uh, Tatiana Calderon, 28-year-old Colombian driver, will be uh, dr- driving for AJ Foyt Racing uh, next year in the NTT IndyCar Series, driving the, uh, the number 11 Rocket Chevrolet. So this is a pretty cool i mean she's kind of been excuse me on the fringes of uh, formula one uh, over the past uh you know couple of years here and there you want to talk about this one a little bit more mark yeah i think this is an exciting story and it's really the first time we've had a a potential permanent female fixture on the indycar scene obviously Mm. since danica patrick was around i think she's an incredibly talented driver with significant amounts of experience i don't believe for a second that this is a indycar marketing exercise i think that series is too well established i think it's too professional i think she's going to be a very capable driver and for me it just gives me another reason to tune into indy this year and it's not that i need it anymore because i thought last year's championship was fantastic i Mm -hmm. love the amount of excitement around IndyCar right now. They're going to some great places that have been incredibly receptive to having them. Nashville was a perfect example last year. That was super fun. Long Beach, which has been a long time established race on the calendar. It looks like it was an absolutely huge blast of a race. I I think this championship is in really great place. And I've said this before, but Formula One, Liberty, if they really want to find a way to grow their revenues, they need to find a way to buy IndyCar and -hmm. bring it under their portfolio of open wheel racing championships. I think there would be some great symmetry for both championships, but I think this is a great pickup for that team. And I'm excited to see what she can do on the track next season. Um, I'm hoping and I expect that she'll be quite successful. And I think this is just great for, uh, for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for for somebody that's like a, a bit of a, a casual IndyCar fan, I, I just can't help but to feel over the last uh, couple of years that this um, series is kind of really stabilized and is uh, kind of uh, having a bit of a, re- a renaissance and then kind of really starting to percolate up through the the, the sporting consciousness. I, I mean, I, I found myself last year tuning into IndyCar races a lot more than I had uh, previously. And number one, because it was a little bit easier to find. 
um, than it was, uh, you know, previous to that. So um, it's really good. I mean, and there, there's a lot of, um, you know, former Formula One drivers in IndyCar. Not that's a, a reason to tune in or that legitimizes uh, the, the the series itself, but uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, and, and it just kind of goes back to that uh, sort of evergreen conversation that regardless who you are, I mean, good drivers are good drivers and hopefully that they all get uh, a shot uh, somewhere to uh, display their talents because ultimately, you know, we as the fans benefit the most when you have the best uh, drivers, regardless of uh, gender, race, age, whatever, get into uh, into a racing car and it just uh, lends to the spectacle. So let's uh, let's hope uh, we see more of this and uh, you know, best of luck to, to Tatiana and IndyCar this year. And that's uh, about it. Uh, I don't have anything else. Uh, I think that we've uh, worked our way nicely through our schedule. So thank you all again, uh, one and all, for for joining us and hanging out. Especially extra shout out to, to those of you in the live uh, stream on uh, YouTube uh, tonight. And uh, if you want to get in touch, uh, by all means, uh, do so. Send us a tweet at ScooteryF1Pod on the Twitters. Or send me an email now that our inbox is uh, spam-free, at least until the morning. And you can do so at ScooteryF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. And on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thanks very much uh, for listening. Have a great weekend. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.